Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landaway. In today's episode, I interview Ethan Buckman. Uh, This is the first episode that I've recorded for this inaugural uh, run of uh, episodes focused on blockchain with the Planetary Regeneration Podcast, and I couldn't be more grateful to have Ethan Buckman, the co-founder of Tendermint and co-creator of um, Tendermint Byzantine Fault Tolerant Proof of Stake Consensus Mechanism and the larger vision of the Internet of Blockchains. Um, Ethan and I uh, have a, I had a lot of fun with this conversation. We have a great conversation. Um, we, we delve into topics as diverse as um, when it may be appropriate to consciously design um, friction points in a world of technologists dedicated to reducing friction at all costs, when is it important to actually consciously uh, create um, boundaries or or conditions where friction exists uh, to kind of keep whole entire systems from collapsing in in small cycles of disturbance? all the way to the philosophical underpinnings of his work. Um, yeah, it, I'll let the episode sort of stand on it, on its own. I had a lot of fun with this one. Um, I look forward to talking with Ethan more in the future. And um, yeah, uh, welcome to the inaugural episode of the Planetary Regeneration podcast. And um, our focus for the next week or two is going to be on blockchain technology and the decentralized web 3.0 and kind of the band of of reluctant technologists who are out there creating new ways of expressing digital technology that is in service to the health of users and hopefully the health of the planet. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Ethan, and uh, I look forward to hearing your reflections. Right. All right. Cool. Ethan, thanks so much for joining. Um, I'm excited to dig in. Um, Yeah, um, I'm just sort of thinking back on the conversation we were having in Berlin um, after sort of after the hackathon had ended and um, we were just kind of hanging out, digging into, um, yeah, well, I guess it sort of feels like it's, it's a conversation. It's the same conversation we've had in all of our interactions, which is also um, the, the conversation that it sounds like you've been trying to have uh, with the world through the talk that you've been sort of honing and refining around, I mean, there's a couple of different elements to this, I think. Um, I was thinking the place to start is maybe jumping straight into this sort of theory of the dissipation gradients um, of energy and how that kind of, um, yeah, how does that understanding um, transform the way that we approach the world what we spend our energy on, and in particular, um, what it means to be building an alternative financial system and maybe alternative governance and other things. 
So that's kind of my, my, there's not a question in there. That's just my framing for where I kind of want to go in the conversation. It's just like get straight into that. And um, so before we, before we go there, I'd love it if you just kind of, um, you know, maybe shared a little bit with the listeners about, you know, they can find out details about your life and all these other things, I think, um, in other places. But what I'm interested in is maybe you sharing a little bit about um, what's the world that you're um, serving, that you're hoping to create through all of your efforts? Like, what's the why uh, behind all of the energy and activity in your life? Uh, yeah, the why. Well, um, I have this understanding that, you know, there's this whole universe here and it's this cool, magical, mysterious thing. Um, and it's amazing that any of this exists or works at all. Uh, and it seems that in this little corner of the universe being like, you know, planet earth, um, well, I guess you back up. So the universe has this like inherent nature. It like does things right. And not only does it do things, it does things that are somehow cool and continue to be like cooler right and you people refer to this as like emergence and you know whatever and, and the universe yeah. is like constantly on this trip right um and you know i actually i actually like this idea you know i i, I listened to a lot of alan watts growing up in say my formative years and um one of the really nice ideas that he kind of planted in, in my brain about how to understand your relationship with the universe and, and the kind of maxim that, you know, tatvamasi uh, that like thou art that, you know, is the idea that um, suppose you could, uh, suppose you could, you, you were a lucid dreamer. So you could dream whatever you wanted, right? So you knew you were dreaming and you could have any experience you wanted. And so the first time you decide to go fly, the second time you, you know, you, you win a big race, the next time, you know, you do all these things, eventually you get through it all, and now you're kind of bored because you've been like playing God and you know you've been playing God. And, and by the end of it, it's like, well, now what do you want? And it's like, well, at that point, it's almost like you want a surprise. You want to like forget that you're the divinity that can control the dream and you want something like interesting that you couldn't predict that was surprising, right? Mm. And so Alan makes the argument that, you know, that's kind of what it is um, to be a thing in the universe is, you know, you're the divinity pretending not to be divine right and just like having fun experiencing things and so it seems like that's kind of what's going on in the universe constantly is this uh this divine energy is like you know all over the place popping up in in weird fantastical new ways and what you know what as far as i can tell what's happening on earth in this general vicinity of the universe is kind of the most far out that we've gotten there right mm -hmm. and i don't really want that to go away um and so all of the why for me is about just sustaining you know, the universe having gotten this far out and to continue its trip on you know, whatever, whatever surprises uh, it has in store, you know? Yeah. I, it, otherwise, it would have to kind of reset in some other corner of the universe and go through the whole, you know, um, sentient species thing again. So, uh, yeah, it's really about, it's really about uh, sustainability in kind of a, uh, it, I mean, it's almost, it's almost futile or uh, ironic, I guess, to talk about sustainability in the context of the larger universe. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I feel somehow this like natural imperative that is to just continue the thing it's been doing and to not let the flame go out in this area, even though, you know, we could light another candle on the other side of the galaxy or something, you know, um, it's like, why not, why not take this further and, and uh, kind of you, you extend, and this, this is all going to connect into the dissipation stuff and talk about 
and the heat death of the universe and so on. And, you know, there's the Isaac Asimov's The Last Question, which I think does a really nice job of, of exploring this. Um, anyways, maybe that's, maybe I'll stop there for now. No, So what I'm, what I was hearing there is just sort of like this kind of expansive cosmic understanding of, of, you know, the universe and in some way our strange, quirky, curious place in it as, as a novel, uh, a, a novel moment, um, yeah. a novel collection of uh, life forms. We have this ecosystem, we've got this earth. Um, who knows if there's any other life out in the universe? Um, who knows if there's any other sort of like sentient or close to it <laughs> life out there? And so we, we'd best take care of what we have, basically. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah I, I resonate with that. I, I, I do. So, um, so what the hell does that have to do with blockchains? Like, <laughs> why, what, you know, why, um, why does having the ability to um, sort of have consensus and uh, run a state machine and have a have sort of like a sort of hard process to upgrade that state machine that people have to, you know, reach consensus about both social coordination and, you know, um, software wise. Um, what does that have to do with preserving or continuing or evolving or serving this sort of like novel corner of the universe that we're in? Yeah. So this is a, I think this is a very deep question and, you know, maybe we'll unpack this over the, over the, over a long time, but I mean, the immediate response is, well, there's a big coordination problem here. You know, we have all these humans now, they're all sentient and some more than others. Uh, they're all running around doing their thing and um, they're all having impacts because of kind of the, the, the connectivity of our technology and, and the pace of our society. Um, they're having impacts and uh, creating externalities that kind of go far beyond their, their scope of their kind of body, physical body. Um, and so they really, to deal with that, you know, we, it, it, it kind of creates this massive coordination problem and we need, uh, we need to address that coordination problem somehow. You know, um, there are very, very dire and stark ways to try to address that through like fascism or genocide or natural disaster and just say, well, if you just wipe out all the humans or remove their autonomy or whatever, then you can coordinate them easily, right? Obviously, you know, a few different folks have tried and, and that's, uh, I think, widely regarded as a very bad idea. But, yeah. uh, you know, so, so what, are, what are the alternatives? It's a very hard problem and no one really knows. But, I mean, what, what's emerged in, in the blockchain world and in the world of, you know, cryptography and um, algorithmic game theory and economic incentives and so on are coordination tools and, and really building blocks for coordination games to, you know, stitch them together in ways that potentially have um, positive outcomes. And so... You know why the blockchain? What does that have to do with that? I, I mean, there's a lot of things here. I think about uh, you know entropy and dissipation and representation of information and so on that we can get into. But it starts on the surface of you know at least to, to to get your foot in the door. It's a coordination problem, and blockchains are some of the best coordination tools we have, at least for you know adversarial networks, untrusted parties, um, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, there's a few different things that I think I want to unpack there. Um, but I sort of, I want to circle back around and uh, just sort of like 
maybe by way of framing, does it resonate with you that, you know, sort of like essentially, um, this is, you know, I'm sort of stealing a page out of Daniel Schmachtenberger's book. If you're familiar with him, he's, he's great, but he sort of lines out this sort of understanding that um, rival, sort of the, the participation in rivalrous games uh, between individuals, between communities, between even civilizations, nation states, whatever, has kind of created this um, kind of like ramping up, like it's an arms, literally an arms race, right? To win or to defend oneself in, in rivalrous games. You got to just keep ramping up and ramping up and ramping up until the point at which we basically live in a world that the, the consequences, like the emergent phenomena of even participating in rivalrous games themselves is basically, you know, uh, annihilation of you know the planet is is on at least it's on the table right of us as a species of the planet is that kind of like resonate with how you sort of outlined the sort of like is that the coordination issue i guess is the question i think so i think it plays a huge role i mean you know it's it's uh it's kind of interesting because i think at some level you need the rivalrous games and that's part of the dance that, you know, this divine dance that's taking place. This like yeah. basic, you know, dichotomy, opposing forces. That right, the lion can't really lie down with the lamb. The lion eats the lamb. That's right, right? yeah. But the lion eating the lamb doesn't destroy the world. The that's lion... right, that's right, yeah. So if your rivalrous games kind of escalate to the point where they, they become uh, existentially threatening, you know, now you have a coordination problem on your hands. Um, yeah, so may, may, that's a, maybe that's the way to look at it. Um, yeah. it. Yeah, and it sounds like it's nested. So there's sort of like, there's coordination problems that are as basic as, I guess, sort of like overcoming the prisoner's dilemma or, or you know, d derivations of that. Um, um, I, the prisoner's dilemma always cracks me up because, you know, uh, clearly there's these two people in jail, like... But anyway, coercive <laughs> situation aside, I do think it's descriptive of a lot of situations we find ourselves in, right? Sure. Um, so how do you over, like how, what's, I guess what I'm really, this is, uh, you know, I don't necessarily expect you to have like the answer, although if you have it, I'll be very excited. But um, <laughs> um, I guess one thing that I'm holding right now, like a big question I have is, what is the relationship between sort of, you know, either choosing to try to win the rivalrous game that you're caught up in, whether that's an arms race or, you know, um, like being the blockchain that everybody uses, whatever it is, um, versus um, trying to create a non-rivalrous game to play. You know, what's the relationship there? Like, um, and I think because, and I'm asking this because I have the intuitive sense, um, not fully landed yet, that that has something to do with why we're all fascinated and putting lots of time and attention into, um, you know, what we can loosely refer to as, you know, blockchain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a hard one. I mean, um you know, it reminds me of like the Buckminster Fuller quote that's like, don't try to change the system, build a new one that makes the old thing obsolete. Mm -hmm. um, 
And in, in some sense, I really do believe that. In another sense, I also feel like there's, um, you know, that, that's kind of the, the creative destruction pitch. But in another sense, I feel like the existing systems are maybe, you know, they're in this kind of too big to fail scenario that it may not be, uh, you know, it may be too, I don't know, privileged a position to be able to say, well, let's just burn it all down and start with a new one because, you know, burning it all down is going to incur obviously a tremendous amount of suffering, right? So there is, it seems to me that there is still something to be said for um, continuing to play some of these rivalrous games with some, you know, lip service or respect to the larger non-rivalrous game that we need to build together. But, you know, I guess, uh, I, I guess, I guess it depends what you're asking. Is it like, you know, for the average guy on the street, is it, is it for me? Like, when do I decide to play a rivalrous game versus not? Or, um, you know, there's all these, there's different circumstances. And I guess the different for each one, I, I might have a different thing to say about it. Like, you know, I mean, a, a classic example right now, say that's, that's hot on the trails is Facebook, right? So Facebook's launching a cryptocurrency and half the blockchain space thinks this is great because it's, it's good for adoption, right? And, and so like, well, you know, th this, is, this kind of feels like participating in the rivalrous game and like, you know, building this thing by like, by working within the existing system and leveraging existing system um, to get towards some goal that is actually, uh, you know, larger and non-rivalrous in some sense, right? And then it seems the other half is like, well, you're just playing, you know, you're just, you're just like building up Facebook's army in the rivalrous game it's playing. I don't care that you might be benefiting the non-rivalrous game we're trying to build together. Like, what are the implications of strengthening Facebook's hand in the existing game, right? It could be, uh, it could be catastrophic. So, well, it sounds like there's a trust issue there, right? Which is, if one believed or had some assurance that, um, you know, Facebook was building towards a, um, a system in which rivalry and rivalrous games don't precipitate <laughs> planetary annihilation, but instead are like, you know, predator-prey relationships and things like that, in which competition really is healthy for the system, instead of competition being potentially, you know, um, just fully systemically destructive. Um, but maybe a lot of us don't trust that, right? And, and that does actually seem to me like the archetypal problem, which is how do I trust that, you know, you're not actually just trying to win the metagame, basically. Like, you know. Um, yeah. I think scale has a lot to do with it. And this is why I've kind of become uh, obsessed with localism and with reducing the scope and scale of things. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, like there's all this, there's all this rhetoric in the tech world about network effects and connectivity and Facebook's trying to connect the world and how could that be bad, right? Like it's obviously a good thing. No one is going to debate it. And, and, you know, more recently I've, I've, I've kind of stopped to think about that a little more and wonder, is that, is that really true? Like, are, is there a bound on the, benefic on the benefit of the network effect after which the utility actually starts to drop because yeah. of externalities that you didn't price in initially that have to do with the lack of boundaries that yeah. you, you know, or the annihilation of boundaries. And there's something, I mean, you know, any kind of stable, sustainable system has lots of edges, has lots of, lots of interfaces, right? Lots of friction 
uh, lots of places where things slow down to get to get to where they need to go. You don't just have this like hyperactive connectivity across the, you know, it's all about weak links, weak coupling, right? Um, we see this like everywhere in ecological systems. And then in the, in the human systems we build in the global financial system and in the social network systems, it's all strong links all the way through, right? And it's like this, this hyper connectivity. And so you get a small disturbance, you know, a, a Russians make a small little Facebook group boom you've got you know donald trump in the white house and you know uh you know small little shake in a in a bank in in new york boom global financial crisis right and so i think that really calls into question the the accepted wisdom that like the network effect is this purely monotonic phenomenon in terms of utility and that you know connecting everyone and so on and that and you know liquidity and unfettered liquidity are are all strictly positive things right um, I think there's really a, really a nonlinear dynamics to these things that have been kind of ignored and that maybe we're on the cusp of starting to understand and take seriously. And then, you know, and then what does that mean for engineering? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't really begin to know yet, but I know that it, it seems to mean something like, you know, having a strategically placed friction, you know, mm -hmm. places where the liquidity maybe isn't as available as you want it to be or where the things can't flow as smoothly as you want them to. And, and that friction is actually necessary to the sustainability of the system. And I think it's, it's really hard for like kind of your rational Newtonian trained, you know, engineers and, and, you know, Bayesians and rational people um, who make up a, a huge part of kind of the tech industry to think like that and to, to see those kinds of nonlinear higher order effects and impacts when in the short term, it just seems so obvious that the network effect is real and utility is going up and, you know, blow away the barriers and increase connectivity. Yeah. Um, and I think that that speaks really tremendously to the importance and value of localized systems and, you know, localism and uh, restoring trust starting from a local level, you know, going back to what you're saying, well, it's a trust issue, you know, how are we going to trust Facebook, right? So, well, how do you, how do you come to trust someone? You get to know them, right? Yeah. Uh, you build kind of accountability, you build a relationship, and that's typically done uh, in person. And so um, I think that this kind of smaller scope and, and uh, more locally oriented businesses, technologies, networks, software, et cetera, is going to be a huge part of our future. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, amen, I certainly believe that. And I think, <clears throat> I think it's, um, you know, so that kind of leads me to, okay, great. So how do you, I guess, what does it look like to design towards local, the, the, local um, access to, and generation of network effect, right? At, at the appropriate scale. So both like functionally, what does that look like? Like what do we need to be thinking about designing for? I think this is, you know, probably largely some of these answers in, are in how you've thought about and, and the rest of the team, the architecture of Cosmos and sort of sovereign zones and, and hubs and like the relationship there. So there's an opportunity to maybe like, invite people into that thinking a little bit. Uh, um, yeah, I think that's a good place to start. And then I want to talk about like, what is actually the appropriate scale? Like what does local mean? Mm. Um, yeah, wow. both, both very good questions. Um, so I guess, I, I guess on the, uh, on the first one. So, um, you know, this is, this is something I still struggle with and I'm trying to understand, but there are, there does seem to be room in localism for global standards and not only room there you know it's a critical component somehow yeah uh, 
So, you know, and this goes back to, well, the second question about scale, like, well, so on what, on what order and, you know, what things are, are tuned to the local culture and what things are shared globally, you know, and you look in biology and, okay, you see a bunch of things that are shared globally, the structure of DNA, roughly, you know, the ATP currency and so on. And then there's this hyper variation everywhere. And so mm -hmm. what are, you know, what, what does that look like in the, in the technology world? It seems like it's some set of open, open protocols, open standards for, you know, communication or passing information. And maybe there's a few different ones. There's probably not only one, maybe it's, maybe it's the, the, the nature of money or, you know, some higher order form of money. Maybe it's Bitcoin or, or some other winner, um, uh, et cetera. So, so at some level you need these, I think you do want and, and maybe need at least a few kind of global standards and, you know, it's going to be very difficult to actually get those, but we seem to have done well. We actually haven't done a very good job with the internet, but we do have some global standards on the internet, right? Um, so, but as far as like, uh, how do we actually start building them? Was that really was that really the question? How do we start building local? Yeah, well, you know, and what does it look? I, I, I'm super interested in the relationship between sort of sovereignty and standards wow. because there's an there there's a seeming paradox there, which I think is. Um, an interesting one to explore. So, yeah. I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's worth talking about a little bit. Yeah, well, I would say, so I think that seeming paradox is the same paradox of uh, how, um, like, constraints breed creativity, mm -hmm. right? I think, I think it's the same kind of phenomenon where, you know, if you, you, you know, it's like, well, if you just have a white page, you kind of have writer's block, and if you have no constraints, you know, there's too much you can do and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, it's kind of well regarded in the artistic creative industries that having some amount of constraints that initially restrict your freedom actually helps drive the creative process. And yeah. I think we'll probably have the same kind of thing for um, local sovereignty in a globally connected world where having some, you know, relaxing or reducing your freedoms to some extent to agree on standards will actually net out into greater sovereignty and greater freedom in some sense on top of those standards, right? Um, and so that's the analogy I would draw in a way that I think, you know, folk, folks would understand or appreciate. Um, beyond that, you know, if we want to get into like, well, how do we actually agree on those standards? And, and you know, what committees do we put together? I mean, I, I have no clue. Yeah, is it by... We're, we're just forging ahead. Are like, those, <laughs> is, it, is it competition? You know, is it... And what's the, you know, what are the conditions? I guess what are like the boundary conditions? You know, what are some patterns or first principles that we might notice w would need to be part of of a standard initiative in order for us to trust it in order for us to say great i will like of my own volition and my own will i will you know offer up some of my you know seeming freedom or liberty um in exchange for this boundary condition that i know is sort of like net net going to you know increase my community's welfare, our ability to self-express, you know, right. et cetera. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, you think about like simple or kind of standard properties you want these things to have, like they should be simple, they should be accessible, understandable, uh, extensible, um, you know, like, but you, you, you could easily end up in this world where you get a bunch of competing standards and, and that's no good. And so you start with, is it, is it better to start with the restraint or the activation? Meaning like, um, is it more likely 
to, you know, it seems to me like there's maybe a tension, and we were kind of talking about this in Berlin, right? I, I sort of proposed this, you know, analogy with evolutionary biology and islands and sort of like genetic bottlenecks and um, how those genetic bottlenecks, like having a genetic uh, bottleneck basically allows for the rise of diversity that otherwise wouldn't exist, that's place-based, that's like specific to a place, right? Like, uh, yeah, so, so there's that. Um, does, like, are, are we focused on standards in order to increase the throughput of sort of, you know, information? or to limit the throughput, to give people the power to limit the in throughput of information. Mm -hmm. I think it's somehow both. Right. Yeah. And, and I don't think we really, I mean, you know, so we're, we're kind of trying to forge ahead on the, a part of it, another critical piece about getting a standard out there seems to be just, just ship the thing, ship it and show that it works. And, and, you know, that seems to be the story of what happened in, you know, with TCP IP and the competing, um, you know, committee based standards that never shipped. And meanwhile, TCP was like clearly imperfect and not as good, but it shipped and it was out there and they fixed the problems as they went. And, you know, right. now we have another mess on our hands because it's not secure and, and so on, but um, you know, it worked. And so, you know, we're, we're, we've sort of been trying to take a similar approach with, with the standards we've been pushing, like the ABCI um, and, and now the IBC. Uh, but, you know, we're taking pains to kind of to look out there at other, um, at other folks building similar things, like the Agoric team, for instance, and saying like, well, you know, we're talking about somewhat similar things here. How can we standardize, right? And so there's, there's some semblance of committee, but you know, if we try to go and, and, and work closely with kind of every single project in the world that is trying to make some kind of blockchain interoperability standard, well, then we, then we might get bogged down. So, okay, with a small enough group, can we make something that we can suspect, A, we can ship soon, and B, will be simple enough, accessible enough, and extensible enough for everyone else to be able to say, okay, actually, you know, this can work, um, you know, th then maybe that's good enough. But, but at the same time, you probably don't want just, just one right? Like you, you, there's something like on the order you know, of three, maybe, I mean, in operating systems, we ended up with kind of three dominant ones, I think, um, in other areas, you know, it's nice to have not just one, um, even though that does come at some cost, you know, there, there are benefits to it. And we don't really, we don't really see that, I guess, in, in biology. I mean, it seems there are, I mean, maybe we do a bit like, um, you know, like DNA is pretty baked in the structure of DNA. I mean, there is like the, you know, viruses live off RNA and, and, you know, things like this, but, um, you know, and same with like ATP, it's like the default molecule for energy and everything basically understands that. But, um, you know, there but that are, could, could be as basic as like binary codes, you know, I mean, most of what we're talking about could be, who knows, you know, maybe what we're talking about is like the fungal kingdom. Right. And there's, you know, four other, you know, kingdoms to be that's thinking. right that's right and so maybe it's just a concept of the fungal kingdom itself that needs to exist and within that there'll be a huge amount of diversity but that diversity is still able to do the job of you know connecting the the rest of the systems and yeah so so what does this you know what scale of local in your mind just to like ground this back out of the sort of like technical landscape um yeah yeah what is the scale at which um, the, the, the 
potential that blockchain has for so social coordination uh, is too dissipated to actually function so that users are able to express their, um, you know, like create a network that is healthy. So I, I actually think we need, we need blockchain infrastructure at almost every scale. So at the, at the, at the highest scale, at the global scale and all the way down to the local scale. And at the global scale, you're not really going to be able to have influence. Um, and that's fine. The, the point of the global scale isn't to really represent your uniqueness. It's to represent the common denominator across all of you. Right. Um, and you know, that's kind of what the sun does in biology. And I like to argue it's kind of like what Bitcoin does for the cryptocurrency ecosystem in one way or another, we should all like anchor ourselves into, into, into Bitcoin and, and kind of trickle down from there. So I do think we need, I think we need, um, the infrastructure at all layers and, and to have kind of an understanding of how well you are represented at each layer and an expectation that at the higher layers, you're going to be uh, chronically and drastically underrepresented and that that's okay. Uh, so far as everyone else is also, you know, chronically underrepresented there, right? Because then it means really no one can change the thing. And I think that's fine. Um, that's how you, that's, that's maybe a pathway towards transcending the rivalrous, um, the right. danger of the rivalrous game. That's right. Yeah. And that, and, you know, so that's one of those, you know, common global standards that is maybe okay because it's a constraint above which, you know, sovereignty, local sovereignty will, will prosper. So. Okay. But so what happens if the, you know, Bitcoin eats the world and just everybody is just burning electricity to generate Bitcoin? Um, yeah. Like th just that, that question, you know, oh, sounds like, great. The industry of solar panels, the solar industry will be propelled ahead uh, decades compared to what it would have been. And we'll be all better off because of it. <laughs> Is that, I, I mean, I think a part of me wants to believe that that's true. Um, yeah. And I'm willing to, you know, I'm willing to consider that that may be true. However, I also, you know, wonder if, if there's a rivalrous game going on and, and the, and winning is like, you know, essentially the cheapest, like just, burning energy and you know running computers yeah <laughs> who does that the most effectively like why does that push solar instead of like nuclear or um you know just put a you know put a big bitcoin mining operation right on top of the tar sands you know like what yeah what's the yeah and and, and i ask this because i think the sort of like buy-in for better or worse, uh, you know, it's worth understanding. Like if that's, if, if, if Bitcoin doesn't have something intrinsic that will for some reason just trend towards like a sane renewable energy source at the base of the computational um, infrastructure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the th I, so, uh, I believe, and I believe the math bears this out, but you know, it's just, I'm just, uh, just telling you about my biases. And so, you know, go, go prove me wrong or something. I believe that it will, it will, it will be very clear that the most effective and, um, you know, economical and efficient thing to do is to use renewables. And increasingly large industries are seeing that. The problem is that 
there's just massive subsidy and massive, uh, you know, interest tied up in, in the petroleum game and in the fossil fuel game. And so there's all this, uh, you know, like molasses holding like almost literally molasses, like preventing the development of, you know, uh, alternative and, and sustainable energy sources. And so Bitcoin is kind of a renegade with respect to those uh, embedded interest and entrenched interest and is not, um, you know, and, and the other thing is the dollar is very caught up in the whole petroleum thing, right? Yeah. And yeah. so the fact that Bitcoin kind of exists outside that means it's not really, it's not really subject to the same kinds of pressures that lead everyone else to conclude fossil fuels, which are due to kind of the, the invalid or incorrect signaling from the dollar that says, well, the cheapest thing to do is use the fossil fuel because the dollar said so, right? So if you're not, if the dollar isn't your beacon, isn't your like, isn't your, your dominant signal, right? And you're, you're kind of operating in another domain, well, then you're actually going to reorient and say, okay, what's actually the, the efficient thing to do here? You know, and, and I think increasingly people are like, well, renewables. So, um, you know, I could be wrong. It could turn out that, you know, actually the most efficient thing to do is like, you know, continue to burn fossil fuels. And that's what the big, all the Bitcoin miners are going to do. But A, that doesn't seem to be bearing out in reality. And, and B, uh, I would have a hard time believing that, you know, that's the universe that we live in, that we're just supposed to use the fossil fuels and then be done. Right. So um, I think there's, there's, I, I have almost no doubt that there, the right pressures exist to harness the energy of the sun. There are just these, you know, regulatory asymptotes in the way that kind of create this vortex that points everyone to, you know, it's like a force field that points everyone to using, using fossil fuels. And to the so extent- in this, in, yeah. this, in this view, uh, you know, essentially Bitcoin represents the, uh, you know, the ability for us to convert solar energy into computational power, basically, like that's at the end of the day, that's what that's what will be the um, yeah. kind of like guiding north star of the global economy. And I think that's right. I mean, in the same way that you know the basic unit of life is converting solar energy into hydrolysis, right? Like use it, use it to split a molecule or something. Um, and then, okay, great. You split a molecule. Now what? Now you have waste molecule, right? It's like, well, no, you harness that. Okay. So, you know, what does it mean to actually harness the computation and the security that the computation provides to, you know, there's a lot there. So I mean, the analogies break down obviously, but, um, I think they're, you know, it's, it's a sound foundation for, for thinking about it. So. Cool. So is there a way to, um, it, it, this is kind of a random question, but is there, when will we reach a point where we have decentralized manufacturing of the components uh, of that infrastructure? So yeah. that, yeah. This is one, this is the, God, this is one, this is one of those big elephants sitting in the room of, of this kind of um, theory. And uh, I don't know that I have good answers to this yet. Um, because you know the metals only exist in so many places and the uh, infrastructure to mine them and put them together into a solar panel or whatever you know every it's not going to be the case that every jurisdiction is going to be able to manufacture its own solar panels within a hundred kilometer radius like that's just not realistic anytime soon maybe eventually maybe with breakthroughs in, in technology maybe with certain kinds of bioengineering and the ability to like harness you know the electrical capacity of organisms and so on which is actually happening i mean there's some amazing work happening in 
uh, electromicrobiology. It turns out there's a bunch of bacteria that can just like literally derive energy from electrodes and, and just like live like that. And so, you know, people are starting to harness that for, you know, fuel cells and, and that's, that stuff is really cool. Um, and so, you know, I'd, I'd go bet on something like that, but in the short term, yeah, I don't know what to say. I mean, we, we're, we're going to need some semblance of global supply chains to actually get to, uh, you know, any additional semblance of local sustainability. And that's kind of a paradox, but you know, you don't really want to throw the baby out with the bathwater here. Like you, 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 you kind of take what you have initially and work towards something better and try to take it as far as you can. And, um, you know, well, one thing I wonder about is like, A, how much of the, you know, rare earth minerals, silicon, et cetera, is already just lying around in our trash. Um, yeah. And pre-mined, basically. And B, what are the appropriate sort of, I mean, I, I guess I'm a little steampunk in this way. I, I kind of like, I don't even think photovoltaics are really the, you know, they're efficient, but I don't think they're the most effective for this sort of future that we're talking about. I tend to think, you know, like, just a good old-fashioned solar concentrator and a steam engine kind of makes a lot more sense. If, you're, if, if what you're going for is the ability of a local community yes. to, like, A, have their own power source, and B, participate in some sort of, like, networked global yeah. kind of digital economy as well. Sure. So, so I have my so I have a hang up on um, I talk about it as uh, work to heat versus heat to work, right? And the the natural world is all about work to heat. There's incoming work energy in the form of high quality sunlight, and what the natural world is doing is very slowly siphoning off that energy into all these myriad cycles until eventually it's dissipated as heat. And humans take the exact opposite approach. We make a lot of heat, and then we use the heat to generate work. Right. And I think that's somehow fundamentally wrong. And even though it's like part of this bootstrap phase that we're in, beginning with the Industrial Revolution and so on, you know, steam engines are amazing, blah, blah, blah. I don't think it's part of the, I don't think it's a big part of the future, you know, hundreds of years from now. Um, I, I could be wrong about that. But I think just like fundamentally, the energetics, um, you know, we really need to drive this kind of work to heat phenomenon and not create heat so that we can then turn it back into work but really use the work as we go and it seems like you know to do that we really need to be operating at kind of a molecular molecular and electrical level which means you know things like like photo i mean i have lots of reservations about photovoltaics there's all kinds of issues in the supply chain and maintenance and and so on um but i think it's like that kind of direction of harnessing sunlight and and converting it into a form of energy that can continue to be used before it becomes heat, I think is really important. And so I'm, you know, uh, that said, you know, maybe it's too far out into the future to actually get there. You know, there's going to be probably biotech involved. Um, we're probably not going to be able to do all that much better than like, you know, photosynthetic capabilities and so on. So for well, that photosynthetic, really I mean, that's the, that's, uh, we, you know, again, like this is maybe showing my sort of like Luddite sort of like engineering biases, but you know, with some mirrors and you know, with some mirrors and a steam engine, you can, uh, you know, in a big reservoir, insulated reservoir, you can run, you know, 
you can capture energy, solar energy, yeah, and and cycle it and and basically cycle off all of the excess heat as well and use it like twenty times, yeah, um, um, using manufacturing techniques that are currently available Lovely. at a local scale and and um, which we have several hundred years of understanding about the consequences of the technology no don't i mean don't get me wrong it's hard it's hard for me to argue with that and like i think that the more communities adopt this kind of very low-tech simple accessible technology uh the better but That's, um, you know and i, I, I can my hang up you know i don't know exactly how my hang up translates um and i try oh. to be a technological luddite too but there's something here that just kind of keeps me hooked in the in the in the technical camp so well i can't help but wonder you know um what what is it going to take for us to sort of imagine you know maybe just thinking this is like a community question to imagine the whole um continuum of possibilities between you know essentially using you know uh sterling steam engines and solar concentrators and um you know pyrolysis and other technologies that have been around since, you know, like World War One, basically, essentially, um, all the way up to like the bleeding edge of, you know, beyond photovoltaics, um, highly engineered performance optimized systems. Um, you know, what does it look like to actually set up the appropriate um, number of experiments where we can also understand the, you know, the human element? Like, like the other day, um, I was I was talking with Jay Kwan, and you know we were walking, and he he has some similar ideas, of course, and um, you know we, he was talking about the the vision that he has of sort of a community in which um, you know the agriculture and the gardening and the food is sort of automated and things like that, and I sort of like tongue in cheek was like, well, you know. I kind of have the belief that the highest expression of my humanity is gardening. Like that's my art. Like that's like, that's like the, the best thing. So I'm really happy to invite my machine friends to experience like what I love. That's totally cool, but it's definitely a different perspective than like trying to get out of the work. So that's like a long circular way of saying like, how many different experiments do we need? Right. And at what, you know, where, what are the points? Like, you know, uh, solar punk, you know, sort of like solar steampunk, you know, community all the way to, I don't know what it, what we would call that, like bio, bio nanotech community, you know, and, and which of them are actually viable now and which of them can we not even really effectively invest in or reason about? Yeah. No, uh, it's really, I, I mean, I totally agree that I don't think, um, you know, I have the same reservations too around, around just like giving up the gardening and the farming to, to bots. And that, you know, I think the, the human, having the human in the loop is such an important part to both the human and the system that, that we don't want to get rid of it. But at some point here, there's a question about, you know, responsible relationships between humans and their technology and really trying to understand what it means to evolve technology responsibly. And if you think about, you know, technologies as like an extension of your physiology, you know, um, and what it means to like responsibly extend your physiology, it, it's not, it, it's something you continue to do, but it probably ought to be done slowly. 
and you know without without too much haste or excitement because then you, you kind of you know you run the risk of kind of running away with it and then ending up in a state where you know you can't fix it or it was too fragile or or what have you right so it's almost like you need to take like small incremental technological steps and then stabilize and kind of make sure that it's sustainable and that you know you can source it locally and so on and then you, you try to take the next step right but that's only possible if you're not in an arms race right that's probably true yeah right it seems to me it seems to me like there's a case to be made that the appropriate relationship between humanity and technology can only be established when we're not in an arms race where we're willing to do we're willing to take crazy risks and do whatever it happens because we feel like there's like imminent existential threat if we don't take some action or invent some you know whatever the nuclear bomb for instance yeah um, so it kind of circles back to the beginning of our conversation, right? Yeah. How do we, um, I guess, how do we create a bridge, something I think a lot about, how do we create a bridge for an, a critical mass of people to be approaching technology um, in that way, where there's enough spaciousness, where they're not losing the rivalrous game, but they're working on playing a different one. So they're not like, actively getting they're not losing but they're not even really trying to win and they're playing something else you know what like what does that bridge look like how many like you know how many cosmos zones do we need and what are they doing to yeah, make it very practical in that it's way funny, it's funny because you're, you're asking like what is the bridge and i'm almost thinking well maybe it's a fence you know going back to the the, totally. the point about, like boundaries and so on right and totally. friction so i mean um I don't know exactly. I think there is, uh, you know, growing awareness among people and growing kind of discontent with the state of things. Um, being able to actually partake in these alternatives tends to require some significant level of, of privilege and wealth and, you know, um, safety to be able to be able to like actually go take those risks and do those things that just aren't, aren't available to huge swaths of the population. And so, you know, maybe a more pertinent question is like, how do we make those opportunities uh, available to people that, you know, wouldn't have the privilege to take those kinds of risks and to, and to find ways to do that, to roll right. that out sustainably. And I think that's really, a, you know, a, the kind of question that you don't really see wrestled with too much in the, in the kind of, you know, upper class tech community, because it's so easy for people to just like go start a company. Well, it's not easy to start a company, but you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. you can kind of take the risk. And if you fall over, it's not a big deal. Like failure is great. Whereas, you know, a huge class of the population don't have that ability. And so they end up having to work for the man. And you know, that 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 doesn't feel good. But you know, you can't really you can't really blame them. So what what do the alternatives look like? You know, that's a is a super hard problem. Partially, we're going to get um, you know, the collapse of the, the Western financial system is, is going to help motivate things um, because there's <laughs> going to be suffering anyways. So, you know, what, like, what do you think precipitates that and how far out are we? Oh, man, I don't know. Uh, it'll be something small and stupid that spreads like a shockwave, probably. And it could happen at any time. You know, it's uh, maybe it's like Poisson. So it's like the the expected time is always two months away or something. It's like Cosmos launch, right? It's two months away. <laughs> totally. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, given, um, 
I, I'm very surprised that it kind of hasn't happened yet, given that it's been like over 10 years now since the last one. I think maybe a lot of people are, but. Uh, yeah, well, and, and what does that mean? You know, it's sort of like a, a business, you know, for, you know, whatever. I don't remember exactly what this statistic is, but, you know, for every year that a business survives, the probability that it goes out of business drastically reduces, you know, essentially, you know. Right. So does that mean that since we're 10 years from the last collapse, that puts it, that makes it less likely to happen? Or are we talking about a different type of system dynamics? I think it's a different system dynamic, yeah. Yeah, so it could like, it's like Yellowstone could go at any moment. It's, <laughs> right. it's like just, you know, something, it's a house of cards and something's gonna tip it over at some point. Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah, you know, I think presumably, I th go ahead. Yeah, well, I was just gonna say, I think the, the, that like, uh, the Lindy argument that you were just kind of saying about companies that kind of the longer they've been alive, the longer they're likely to be alive, um, seems to be, you know, it seems to like derive from some sense of like uh, anti-fragility and like learning, right? It's like the fact that you've been alive longer is kind of indicative of the fact that you've been like learning and adapting, which makes it kind of more likely to stay, al to stay alive longer. Whereas that's not what's happening in the global financial system, right? It's still alive because of momentum and because of too big to fail. And, you know, if the thing goes down, like everything is at risk, right? So, well, is, it, is, is Libra an indication that the global financial system is learning? And Circle and whatever, all these other... Um, maybe, maybe. I mean, I'd hate to hand the thing over to fucking American shareholder capitalism, but... Uh, it's just going to be the same thing all over again, but, uh, yeah. So let's rant about that for a second. You know, uh, shareholder capitalism, um, why is that a problem? Um, yeah, why is that a problem? Okay, so it's not a problem in and of itself. Um, you know, having, so, so first of all, limited liability structures are uh, absolute requirements for risk-taking in society right? You need to be able to take risks, the results of which you, you, you are, uh, can be isolated from due to some kind of, uh, you know, consensual agreement with your society, right? Um, and yeah, and, and there are certain cases where like, you don't get the limited liability, and you're just like, you know, liable up to your teeth, like literally, and then other, other cases where you do. So I think like the idea of limited liability and kind of the protection uh, is critical. And then, okay, so then, then there's questions about like, well, uh, you know, typically you're trying to raise a bunch of capital to do some really risky thing. You don't know how it's going to go. And so, you know, you want this like separation of, of concerns between the people providing the capital and the people actually like, like doing the work and, you know, all that is fine. Um, so in and of itself, having corporations, having shares, having, you know, non-associated external investors, like there's nothing really fundamentally wrong with that. What's wrong is when you try to architect your entire society on top of this as like the fundamental structure for coordination. Then you get major, major problems because you end up, uh, you know, completely failing to represent the fundamental interests of the people in your society that you're ultimately trying to serve. And you turn everyone into a consumer who's trying to drive return to the shareholders of, of the corporations, right? Um, and then you end up in these like, you know, uh, A, these like winner take all games and B, these too big to fail games. And both of those are catastrophic. Um, and maybe that's not also just the, a consequence of, of the shareholder 
uh, approach itself. You know, there's a lot of history here. There's a lot of uh, significant relationship with, with the government, with the nature of the dollar, which I think plays a huge role in corrupting kind of shareholder-based incentives. You know, if the dollar was deflationary, maybe it would be sufficient to have a society based on shareholder capitalism. Probably still not. Uh, and, and kind of what, I was, what, I, what I've been sort of pitching is that we need a better balance between um, shareholder-based organizations and membership-based organizations. So kind of the corporation and the cooperative, right? Mm -hmm. And I think these two really, they're totally out of whack right now. Everything's corporations and there's almost, you know, there's a small number of cooperatives. Um, Non-negligible though, I mean, cooperatives do make up a significant amount of global economic activity. It's kind of amazing and, you know, they're well known to last longer and have less turnover, they're more sustainable, higher satisfaction, et cetera, et cetera. And so I sort of suspect that we need um, more cooperatives and more of kind of the, the fundamental basic services of society, the kind of foundation of society being provided by these more democratic, collectively operated uh, organizations, on top of which you can go experiment with your innovative, high risk, you know, um, corporate structures, uh, you know, but you're, but you're kind of more grounded. And so what's the relationship between those two approaches to business and, in your view, the role of government? Um, the role of government is largely about, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. So I think in, in some sense, you could think about um, replacing governments with cooperatives. I mean, in some sense, the governments are, you know, they, they're kind of like one member, one vote systems, at least in, you know, modern democracy. It's just the, the voting systems they use are, are just broken, totally, totally unsound. Um, you know, so there's tons of things wrong with it. So I think you can kind of think about the governments as cooperatives and you can kind of think about, um, you know, cooperatives taking the role of, um, of providing kind of the services that governments provide. Uh, I think that probably, you know, a big problem with government is, is they're hyper-centralized and they're too far away from the stakeholders, right? And so having, you know, breaking down the functionalities of government so that more and more is happening closer to the actual uh, people that it impacts and more local decision-making and kind of cooperative groups uh, would be um, tremendously valuable. And maybe the purpose of government, you know, is to kind of work towards that and to just kind of be a... Uh, uh, an overseer and director and coordinator, you know, cooperative of cooperatives kind of thing, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and to occasionally hold the corporations in check and, you know, reevaluate the common standards that everyone shares and the, you know, enforcing the legal system and so on. So very, you know, very, I think, I think anarcho, there's a role for very anarcho collectivist of you. Something like that. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I, I've, I've kind of, um, you know, in the past I've said something like, I feel like we need uh, a global economic system that is more like communism at the bottom and capitalism at the top, right? You build like a sustainable framework out of smaller socialist units. I mean, socialism obviously doesn't scale very far beyond, you know, your family or maybe 150 people or something like that. But if we can like figure out a way to stitch these small socialist units together and kind of create a foundation for, you know, ca global capitalism, you know, something like that works, I think. What's, what's really interesting about, I, I mean, yeah, I, I think you're right. And what's really interesting is, um, have you ever heard the, the term, the communism of the rich? No. So there's this idea, um, which actually has been studied, that, you know, wealthy, like the hyper wealthy, you know, and, and maybe, and probably even a couple tiers below that, 
like, hey, you know, you've got a couple billionaires, they're going to Davos, like they're not gonna quibble over who's paying for what. Right, right, right. Like there's totally like sort of a carte blanche, like, hey, I got this, no worries. There's not gonna be any, you know, the, the way in which the, transa the transactional brain is not operating amongst the peer group that is the owning class of the sort of like shareholder capitalist apparatus, right? But then when, it, when the, the, the actions of those people and how they sort of uh, project outward from their business interests means that at the bottom, things are super transactionalized. And the, you know, so, so there's just an interesting like mirror of what you were just saying, which is make it spacious enough so that, so that everyone essentially can enjoy that like, yeah, I mean, doesn't matter who picks up the tab and, you know, whatever the, the sort of like transactional, hyper transactional fabric of society right now, maybe that's a lot less transactional. Maybe it's significantly different. And yet there's still this place for you know, an extraordinarily transactional kind of rivalrous, you know, competitive game taking place. It's just, you know, um, more constrained, more encapsulated, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, it does, it seems like there's, like, there's no um, providing the basic necessities for every human on the planet isn't beyond our technical capacity. No. And it's not beyond our competence. It is beyond our coordination ability. It's currently beyond our social coordination ability, yeah. Right. And we know that, you know, socialism on a large scale or communism on a large scale is not going to work. It just turns into genocide, right? Um, and so, you know, what does that mean? Well, the, the capitalists and the neoliberals and libertarians have all been like, well, it's just, just markets, 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 markets everywhere, markets solve all problems, you know, you can't do better than that. Um, and that seems, you know, naive and fundamentally flawed. And, and there actually is a lot of communist-like, socialist-like substructure that we can put in and, you know, kind of work our way up to the global capitalist libertarian game. I think uh, Taleb or someone had a tweet recently that kind of reflected the sentiment. It was like, you know, I'm communist with my family, socialist with my friends, democratic with my city, and like libertarian uh, globally or something like that, right? And I think that, that, that kind of hierarchy really, um, really reflects the nature of trust as you, as you move up the scale, right? Mm -hmm. And you can't, you can't like, you know, having communism or the kind of communist mentality implies a significant amount of trust with, with the people you're engaging in that with, right? And you can't scale that beyond more or less a close friends or family or something, right? And so taking, like being realistic about the nature of trust and the nature of adversaries and things like the prisoner's dilemma and so on, and, you know, actually applying engineering, you know, based on those realities, um, I think that's kind of where we're, where we're starting to get to in, in terms of, you know, these people doing uh, token economics and, you know, algorithmic design or game theory, algorithmic game theory design and so on. Right. Yeah. To be very real about that. Whereas, you know, political theory in the past seems to have, have not, I mean, I've never studied political theory. So, you know, what do I know? I'm just kind of going to dismiss a whole industry off the cuff, but I <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't figured it out yet. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I do think, I think you're right. I, I really, that's, I mean, that's what drew me to um, 
the sort of the world of exploring um, token economics and state machines, blockchains, you know, I, I sort of have the idea that, you know, every blockchain essentially is a commons, basically. There's a set of users. Most people are operating with like a one token, one vote. You know, you got to own a token to interact. There's other ways that you could do that, right? Um, conceivably. Um, none of them are super easy at the moment. Um, you sort of have your boundary conditions and then you can decide what to hard code into the blockchain. And then you got to go through a whole social coordination process to upgrade it. So there's a way in which it's like a digital reflection that kind of like forces us to slow down. I've, I've been thinking a lot, you know, Cosmos, Cosmos has had an enormous amount of grace in its emergence. And, um, you know, people talk about, you know, like you were jokingly saying like, you know, it's two months until launch, it's two months until launch. I mean, so there's been this sort of sense of like, oh, things were late, <laughs> right? But, but actually, my reflection on all of this is that things have happened at the pace of the social coordination, essentially. Like, you know, you could probably code and launch something. Obviously, you can code and launch something quicker than that. But there's something about the pace of social coordination and, and reaching the appropriate level of consensus so that people have imbued, for instance, the atom with, like, it is valuable to people. People are like, this is valuable to me to this degree, right? And the market can discover that. But then what it creates, just like witnessing the, the IB, you know, our time, recent time together in Berlin and the interchain conversations and the hackathon, what I witnessed there was some sort of commons, right? It was people working together as part of a share, it had all the attributes. There's sort of like a shared community, you know, there, there's a um, sort of a way of assessing the common resource, right? And understanding, valuing it and valuing contributions to it. And so it's like, to me, there's this really interesting thing happening with the, the you know, Satoshi's Bitcoin white paper and Bitcoin is hyper libertarian, right? But out of that, it's this strange emergence of some sort of much more communal um, approach. I don't necessarily see that in the Bitcoin community. <laughs> but I did witness that in Cosmos, I think. And, and it was really heartening to me. Yeah. Well, that's all makes my heart warm that sounds really nice and uh, I, I agree I experienced the same thing and and you know especially about talking about the launch you know timeline and all that and like were we late or not you know, well you know based on the initial project projections sure uh, but I think you're right that from the you know social coordination perspective like it took that long to build the competence in the validator set right exactly. I mean, by the time we launched we had a world-class highly capable highly competent validator set where neither all in bits nor the foundation played any role in actually launching the thing. Like we didn't, you know, we didn't really run nodes. We didn't run validators. It was everyone else that had been trained over the last year to do that. And that took a lot of time and that, you know, the community did a ton of work to actually socialize that knowledge and help each other out and like build what is now a new business model that maybe the foundation of 
the future of telecommunications and so on, right? So, yeah. okay, it took an extra year to get the first one launched, like, yeah, not a big deal. And, all, and I, I really love the way that, um, that Zaki has kind of talked about this. You know, he gave, a, he gave a talk at MIT, which I think was kind of like his victory lap. <laughs> so it was like right after launch or right around launch where he was kind of talking about the launch process and talking about the challenge of um, the kind of tension between shipping a public good and being a startup yeah and, right totally. and he, he 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 gave this he gave this picture where it was like you know he showed like a rickety old bridge over the river and then like you know the golden gate bridge and you don't get to the golden gate bridge by like iterating on your rickety you don't like ship the rickety bridge and then like iterate you know you, totally. you, you kind of got to do it all and so the blockchain companies are finding themselves in this like really strange territory that's very difficult to think about where you know, you need to iterate, you need to be a lean startup, blah, 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 but you're also trying to ship a global public good. And there isn't a roadmap for that. You know, there's no book on how to do that, right? Um, and he talks about kind of the way, the way we did it, where, you know, kind of at every step of the way, there was something usable, there was something available in, you know, maybe a different part of the stack. Like first there was Tendermint and lots of people were building on it and it ran in production before there was anything like a Cosmos SDK. You know, and then there's an SDK and then, you know, there's other, and then there's like validate and so on. So like at every step, there was something that people could use and work with and start to bet on. Um, and that seems, that seems like super valuable and hopefully we'll see others, others kind of repeat that and have, you know, similar kinds of success and, you know, give us a run for our money, so to speak. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Or, or from within the same ecosystem, you know, I sure. mean, I think I definitely, you know, in our endeavor, in the region network endeavor, that tension has been omnipresent. You know, we've yeah. been, you know, the peer pressure alone to like act like a fucking lean startup, damn it, is, it's incredible, you know, to say like, wait a second, we're actually building a piece of infrastructure here. It won't be useful for anybody if it's, yeah, if it's a rickety bridge, like it's just simply, and someone will fall through the board and die and then no one will ever use it again, yeah. right? That's basically, you know, so there's like a, there's like a minimum viable level of, that, that's much higher than just like shipping, like getting somebody to sign up their email or like join a plat, like a social network platform. We're talking about the exchange of assets and, you know, the execution of agreements and things. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that tension is challenging. And I think, I think in five years, we're all going to look back and likely there will be sort of new models for this sort of like, I don't know what to call it, venture altruism or something, you know, like the, 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 the common enterprise of creating a public good that, that supports a whole ecosystem of private enterprise, right? Yeah. Because as you said, you know, validators, that's a whole new business model. There's a whole new business model that emerged. And, so I'm curious, like, did you foresee the, the validator business model? Like, it's not in the, it's not in the white paper, really. Uh, yeah, of course we did. So, I mean, uh, when we, uh, first of all, I think we should call it venture cooperativism. So I'll just pitch that. Uh, cool. Yeah, <laughs> but, love it. I mean, um, in 2016, and, and this, is, this is kind of coming full circle now. So um, do you know what the Creative Destruction Lab is? They're, a, they're, they're like a mentorship program slash incubator based out of Toronto, but they've, they've been spreading. Um, and, you know, highly coveted nonprofit program that puts through, you know, for-profit companies 
that are kind of based on some kind of deep tech and they love companies that are about to like translate some some students deep PhD work into a commercial product and you know help them do that and you know it's a really great program um, and they're you know they're part of the they announced that they're part of Libra's initial validator set right and so, uh, so they're kind of on, on the map there now but um, we took Tendermint and Cosmos, Jay and I took Tendermint and Cosmos through the program back in 2016 before they had really seen any blockchain companies. We were part of the first cohort, right? Mm -hmm. uh, now they have like a full-on blockchain AI stream and, you know, I'm an associate there and, well, depends on how poorly I talk about their involvement with Facebook. Maybe maybe they won't ask me back, but um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the first time through. So, but anyways, the, you know, we were pitching Tendermint and Cosmos and there wasn't really a lot of like blockchain understanding and, you know, it got to a point where they were, you know, at one point we were pitching, oh, like Tendermint, like, you know, BFT business, like uh, businesses are going to use this as databases and we'll be able to sell products to enterprise. And, you know, they kind of grok that. Right. And then we tried a different tack, which is like, no, let's just go full throttle on this Cosmos thing, this like new infrastructure. Right. And, and they just like weren't they weren't having it. And, you know, there's a, there's a part of the session where they kind of grill you on, like, what are you really proposing? And I was trying to like, you know, what is your business model? And I was trying to say, like, look, we're not we don't have a business model we're creating a new business models for other people to figure out, right? Like there's going to be all kinds of stuff running on these rails and yeah. all kinds of new, and they're like, you know, what, you know, what does that even mean? Blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, and then you come back and a year later, two years later, now it makes a lot of sense to everyone that I go, yeah, validator as a service, you know, some of those guys have invested in validator companies, you know, it's like, so um, it, yeah, it's a, it's amazing seeing this happening. Honestly, sometimes I'll just say like, Sometimes I'm scrolling through the Cosmos Telegram channels and just like seeing folks talking about like what is being built and these new businesses and just like I just become like overwhelmed with like this emotion of like wow it's it's really happening like you know boots on the ground people are really building new things and and starting to address real problems in a systematic way using this technology that this huge group of people built together over you know the last five years or something that everyone thought we were crazy or scammers initially for like it's incredible to see it actually coming to fruition and you know to see it, projects like yours you know starting to use it and build on it and address like real critical fundamental problems in society you know that was you know that was the whole funny uh, like Vlad Zamfir and I kind of got started actually this uh this this picture up here is a bunch of melted crayons that someone made for Vlad back in the day when he used to, when he used to live in Guelph. And so it was in his office and, you know, he's a nomad now. So now it's in my house. Um, but, but like when we, when we got started, you know, uh, one of the first projects we kind of announced together was this thing was this like crypto Schwartz. It was named after Aaron Schwartz and it was like, uh, you know, decentralized peer review file sharing system. Right. And, this was in 2014 and very quickly after that we were like oh you know we probably have to do a few years of work on the core infrastructure before we could ever launch this thing you know like yeah. five years later we're still at it and someone just tweeted at me there was like hey i'm looking for an update on crypto shorts and i was gonna be like hey we're still working on infrastructure like let me get back to you <laughs> yeah yeah well, we're getting close you know like but it's happening and yeah i mean that's been an interesting i i just fully resonate with that um, experience of trying to explain to you know investors, um, mentors, um, you know, sort of people along the path. Like, hey, essentially, what we're building, yeah, is is an infrastructure for this whole new way of approaching business. Right? It's different. It's better in the following ways. 
it's all very abstract, I think, until people start to see it. And I have the sense that it's, we're still maybe a year out until, at least in our case, the crit- but, it's, but it's, it's transformed. It's, like an, it's, it's a completely different ballgame now, especially since Cosmos launched. There was some sort of like, you know, ripple in the forest, right? And all of a sudden, people could see things in a different way. And I think we're still about a year out until it's going to be so obvious. It's going to be so obvious. I, I, I'm, it's bringing to mind this, um, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm bad at remembering the name of people when I quote them. So apologies to whoever, dead or alive, said this. But, you know, try explaining a car to someone who's only seen horses and buggies. Yeah. And you get a metaphor like a horseless carriage, yeah. right? But that doesn't at all describe what a car is. That's right, yeah. And I think there's a lot of that going on right now, which is like, okay, what does it mean to, to distribute, to have distributed infrastructure and a decentralized trust system? And how does that transform economic relationships? And why is that important? for a big swath of what currently is encapsulated by essentially shareholder capitalism. Like how does that disrupt, transform, and meld with? I think there's also gonna be like fusion, uh, obviously. Like these validators, uh, many of, most of them are probably shareholder uh, uh, companies. I, I hear r- rumor that some of them are, you know, co-ops and other groovy yeah, things. That's a co-op. Yeah. <laughs> the best named one. Yeah. <laughs> that, that would be Adam Sandler. No. <laughs> no, but yeah, he's the second best named one. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Um, gosh, where do we go from here? We've done a pretty good, um, it's been a good, good whole, like, it feels like there's been a pretty, pretty broad conversation. Um, Ah, what's, what's next? Like, what are you, what are, I mean, both what are you passionate and excited about digging into right now? And, you know, what's your sense of, you know, where the broader community is? You know, this group of people that's been working now for five years and is now expanding and expanding, you know, what do you think is next? Yeah, wow, a lot of things. I mean, so there's a, there's a huge amount of work that has to be done. Um, I'm currently focused on a, on a few things or most excited, I guess, by a few things. So, you know, um, we're trying to build up the organization of the Interchain Foundation. So, you know, that's a nonprofit. It's, it's well endowed. Um, you know, partially it has some, um, you know, obligation or, or sense of an obligation to distribute capital to the ecosystem, but there's also kind of a growing, um, you know, understanding that, well, maybe it could also be really effective by kind of building an internal organization and a, and a research and development team and doing something in-house as well. And we've been exploring that, especially uh, from the perspective of, of um, correctness engineering, uh, correctness for distributed systems. And I mean that both for digital distributed systems and analog, like human distributed systems. And so, you know, we've been thinking about it kind of both from a bottom-up and top down, we want to bring like, you know, formal verification tools to real software artifacts like Tendermint consensus and but to the actual software, not just the protocol, right? Mm-hmm. Prove that you know, it's correctness and get stronger guarantees out of it. 
um, and figure out a better kind of a better engineering process for all that. But then also a top-down approach of um, bringing correctness to kind of uh, corporations and organizational state and making it easier for people to, to run organizations and to run legal entities to have that you know legal liability or limited liability protection in a way that's a lot more accessible and cheaper and uh, understandable and extensible and you know you can build things on top of it and kind of you know the kind of plain text corporation vision that I'm always mm -hmm. um, rambling on about so those are yeah. those are kind of the directions of work that I'm kind of focusing on and of course you know there's all the specific features of like well we have to ship IBC and you know there's a ethereum bridge and a Bitcoin bridge and the different zones to build and you know, proof of stake improvements and, you know, have a Uniswap model, like all the cool stuff and, and the decentralized finance stuff that we're trying to create. Um, the other thing, the a direction I'm super excited about and interested in is the kind of formalization of token engineering that is kind of being spearheaded by block science um, yeah. and the kind of tools they have to really bring like nonlinear dynamics and systems theory to the world of token engineering and to really put it on firm scientific and engineering uh, grounds. And I think, you know, that's probably the next critical piece before we can actually go and try to deploy these systems into real world local environments where they're not just kind of speculative games for, you know, rich cypherpunks, but are, you know, can actually have an impact on a real community and real people can engage and understand and, you know, so on. So totally. Um, yeah, I, I last week had a conversation with Zargam and um, he sort of walked us through his cat cat stuff. And, uh, you know, um, Sean Conway at Ixo and us and, and Zargam have been talking a lot about all of that, about like, you know, what does it look like to, you know, and this kind of gets, it's interesting because, you know, in that, re that relationship between Ixo and Region Network, is just like an archetypal example of, I think, the coordination challenge and the rivalrous versus non-rivalrous approach. And it's sort of where the rubber hits the road with the axiom that Region Network is trying to live by, which is out-cooperate the competition. <laughs> which is, you know, okay, we're two very similar, um, projects with similar technological needs with slightly different constituencies who've had different fundraising strategies who have currently different responsibility to slightly different sort of like stakeholders um but but we're sort of like convergent or at least parallel and we have the same you know essentially r d needs you know we have all these different needs and we're sort of like scratching our heads around, you know, what does coordination look like? Do we, do we band together and create a single hub of which we're both zones? Do we choose one of our zones to become the hub? Do we, you know, do we both, do we just run parallel zones and have fun competing? Do we like make a checklist of specific sort of like research and development goals that we share and we just sort of like work on together you know what's the degree of uh coordination and cooperation that's being asked for and i think in in the case of both of our organizations we feel a high degree of you know and maybe to our detriment but a high degree of urgency given our 
our, our sense of existential threat and the need to develop, to research, develop, and deploy these sort of coordinating technologies, the ability to um, sort of create tokenized um, rights and asset exchange based on, you know, the multiple forms of capital that are not financial, that need to be accounted for, internalized, and kind of like, um, yeah, I venerated for lack of a better word, really. So yeah, I, I couldn't be more excited that you guys are, that, that's like, it's like the resonance, the, morph, the morphogenetic field is, is strong, I guess. It seems like there's like a big intersection we're all at, so. Yeah, that's right. Well, and I especially like, I especially like what Zargon is doing um, because, it, you know, having the connection to kind of the nonlinear dynamics keeps us close to like the statistical mechanics stuff that underlies a lot of my, you know, once upon a time I was trying to try to make an argument for how to derive the, the human soul from statistical mechanics. And so I, you know, I kind of ground all of my religious philosophy in physics. And, you know, I, I, I once wrote a blog post called like how to derive politics from physics and so on. Um, but, uh, you guys are kindred yeah. spirits. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so I, you know, I definitely resonate a lot with kind of his background and, and what he's doing. And I think that having that language come into this space, I think could be, a tremendous benefit for thinking about kind of the sustainability of these systems and using them actually as a kind of, um, you know, starting points for engineering and for engineers to really think more about sustainability and, and organism like, you know, entities and, and so on. So, uh, you know, having more people look at that and play with that and actually use that to design things, I think is going to be really exciting and I'm really looking forward to it. But I mean, ultimately, you know, where I want to, where I want to get this and what I got so excited about, you know, years ago was really like, you know, local economic sovereignty, local currencies, you know, uh, freeing people from the tyranny of a global dollar, um, et cetera. And, and so figuring all that out and using the kind of tools and primitives we're building of, you know, consensus engines and bonding curves and, you know, these simulation frameworks to understand the economics and all this um, is, you know, it's here now and it's happening. And so it's, it's super exciting. Yeah. It's pretty exciting. Is there, are, are, is there a particular, um, are there some particular applications right now that you're paying attention to and really excited about? Um, yeah, there's a few. I mean, so uh, something that actually has adoption, like a project I really love, is called Buns. Uh, it's based out of Toronto, and they they started as like a bartering app. It was really a group on Facebook, funnily enough, that kind of exploded and had you know ended up with like a million people bartering with each other all over the place. Uh, and they were like, no currencies allowed and whatever. But what happened was like currencies kind of emerged naturally people started using like bus tokens and, and cans and things like this as like mediums of exchange and finally the um you know they, they had rolled out an app too and finally they're like you know what, let's let's put a currency into this thing um and they've been in, in that and that's been working and the currency is called bits btz which actually stands for buns trading zone um it's not really built on a blockchain yet it does have an integration with ethereum so you can like move your buns token into a erc whatever, not 20, one of the other ones, um, and like move it around ether. And, you know, they're ultimately trying to work towards getting it onto like an actual, you know, probably Cosmos zone or maybe something else we'll see. But um, that's actually has a lot of adoption and is used by real people and, you know, has a real impact in the sense that like people, it's causing people to barter more. They're trying to experiment with like a model that creates better relationships between local uh, retail shops and their, um, 
uh, I don't want to say consumers, but you know, patrons, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's when I really like more theoretically, the thing, I, the problem I'm infatuated with and that I think is like really critical is, uh, like organic farming and figuring mm -hmm. out how to better, uh, you know, value the, the work done and the efforts of local organic farmers. And, you know, there's so many, it's so hard and they take so much risk and you know they get ruined by like a single summer or a single season of bad weather and there's so little support for them and it's so hard for them to get loans from the bank and you know um so to, to actually figure out an economic system that could give them some greater sense of you know sustainability economic sustainability without having to like mortgage their whole future um is kind of really important to me so figuring out how to do that you know i care a lot about that and i don't know exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah me too um you're familiar with um csa stuff right yeah that like um rudolf steiner's kind of um th that's an application of rudolf steiner's um theories about associative economics okay um, and i think that sort of like membership based relationship with farmers because of the, because you essentially bear in a very simple way create a, a shared risk yeah. basically right up front is going to be really interesting to see if we can um make that spread quicker using some digital tools i'm actually that's that's something i'm really excited about too it um not going directly for that at the moment but i think it's a it's an important one yeah yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, yeah, I've had, I've been part of CSAs for, for years now in Guelph for a few years. And then in Toronto, you know, it's a little bit more of a commercial operation, but, um, but I've thought a lot about how to, how to make that work. And I mean, the problem is the farm, you know, the people who, who turn to farming are maybe not as technologically oriented and, you know, there's yeah. already so much risk already. So what are they going to, you know, adopt your shitty new shitcoin for right like what is this to them like really hard problem but if you can loop in suppliers if you can loop in you know labor and 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 the inputs you know their expenses if their expenses can be paid in a thing that they get issued just for showing up i mean that could really that could really change things but yeah i mean i think the way that we've been thinking about this um i think there's multiple ways to approach the problem but we've essentially been thinking yeah, basically, how do we add another income source um, in which the farmer, the land steward, is basically just getting able to get paid for the public good that they generate in yeah. addition to the produce, basically, yeah. as like step one, right? Because that um, that just seemed like a good entry point. I think that there's the need after that to be considering how to pretty do a pretty radical overhaul of the, I guess, sort of like um, uh, chain of custody, processing, production, and, and the whole relationship downstream from the farm, um, which I also think software is uniquely suited for and blockchain is uniquely suited for. That sort of like, uh, supply chain transparency but it's beyond that it's not actually about tracking 
you know, a crazy long global supply chain. That is a very unimaginative use of blockchain in my opinion. <laughs> it's really more about how do you optimize the exchange, kind of like Buns is doing. How do you create uh, an ability to optimize the exchange of this produce in a way that is, is coherent with a thriving and biodiverse approach to farming? Because if you can take that, if we can shift from the economy of scale to an economy of diversity, um, those droughts and other things like that will be way less bad because you, you know, a, a, a drought year is going to be bad for some produce, but actually, interestingly enough, if you have a diverse enough system, there are other things that will like step up to meet the, the need. They just currently have nowhere to go in the economy. Nobody uses them. There's no, you know, there's no relationship with those. We just all eat, you know, uh, well, you don't, but you know, wheat or corn or we, you, there's these big ones, right? That just like are you big ones? Yeah. Pretty so much yeah. chestnuts, uh, you know, acorns, <laughs> hazelnut. We just planted a couple of hazelnut trees, so nice. maybe those will bear fruit in seven years. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. That's the other thing that I find fascinating, which is, you know, like almost like decentralized ETFs around these like longer term perennial crops because then you can ameliorate the risk of farmers who are transitioning to a perennial system. Yeah. And oh, um, yeah. 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 I think that's going to be huge. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm crossing my fingers. That's something that we can, you know, get on top of in the next little bit, you know, as, the, as, as the infrastructure sort of gets in place and matures and we can then, sort of start to just play and have fun with it, that's a big one. Like a chestnut ETF or a Northeast nut crop ETF, you know, sort of thing. I mean, it's a fantastic long-term investment strategy. And then you get land stewards, you basically take the risk right out of the equation for them to start transitioning towards these more diverse uh, perennialized systems. So that sounds pretty cool. Yeah. So, yeah. So to, to it's you know let's make it happen i think it's you know i think it's one of those things that's that's although some people may not see it yet it will happen yeah essentially like it's something that's that's emerging so cool man well um gosh i'm super grateful for your time and uh not just the last hour and a half but also more generally um all the energy that you've been dedicating to the good work you're doing so thank you thank you very much yeah and uh, it's been a super fun conversation yeah it's been great well let's do it again sometime yeah let's, let's do it again conversations <laughs> yeah totally yeah totally uh i realized i forgot i like to close um with just asking what right now um what are you reading what is inspiring you um, fiction, nonfiction, um, or, you know, maybe listening to as well. Right now, uh, I'm reading two books. I, uh, one is called Zucked, uh, about how everyone's getting zucked and yep. uh, how terrible it is. So that's, that's kind of for fun. Um, I <laughs> believe Facebook will go down as the worst company in history. 
worse than, you know, the early colonial empires or the colonial companies. And uh, I think they've perfected digital colonialism and, and it's really bad. Um, it's more, sin at least, at least when the colonials were like enslaving people, it was like explicit. It was like, hey, you're a slave, you know? Now it's like, ah, you're not a slave, but really you are, you know? Yeah. So anyway, that's, that's an aside. Uh, so don't get sucked. Um, I'm also reading... <laughs> Sorry, just everywhere I look now, I just see people getting zucked, and I just love having that like term in my head. But um, the other thing I'm reading, which is incredible, it's a little bit poppy, but um, it's still very good. It's called Scale by Jeffrey West, mm. and it's about kind of the power law scaling inherent in organisms and cities and companies that underlies a lot of the the very interesting like nonlinear uh, efficiency effects that that you get by having like fractal like networks um in your system and so that's been a really really fun read so i highly recommend that i actually i received that from the cdl um the creative destruction lab um yeah that organization is great but uh the other the book i love to recommend to people if you're interested in kind of the conversation we've been having and, and the thing that kind of really oriented my thinking around organisms as sustainable entities and sustainable entities as organisms is called The Rainbow and the Worm by Maywon Ho. She's a, a famous biochemist. Um, and uh, there's probably a lot of things that are wrong in that book, turns out, but uh, it's still incredible and, and worth reading to really kind of turn you on to the magic of the organism and how like amazing it is that, that these things exist like at all. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of inspiration to be taken from there. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, those are all good ones. I'm I'm in I'm in the middle of Zucked as well. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah. After having read uh, Surveillance Capitalism, yeah, I then sort of shifted over to Zucked, and um, yeah, that book is too big for me. It's massive, right? Surveillance Capitalism. It's a big one. It's a it's a big read. I've been uh, you know Audible. I've been rocking the Audible, okay. which is easier for a uh, you know for having a couple kids. Um, just so is it is it worth it? Should I pick up surveillance capitalism? I think it's worth it. I think you should definitely read it. Yeah, it's um and it'll confirm it, all my biases. Yep. <laughs> yep. It, I, think I need to read more things that challenge my biases. <laughs> that too. That too. It's um, I mean she's no she may challenge. I mean she's sort of like challenging the entire. She's basically just distrusts tech in general, although mm, there are some things, she talks about a couple things, I, I forget what it's called. There, there was a, like um, Georgia Tech had this working group, I don't remember what it's called, the Wired, Wired House Working Group or something that did um, all of the early work on like IOT smart house stuff. And they, all of these scientists, totally just had the assumption that of course all of this would be private and it would only ever be used for your own household intelligence and your own understanding etc cetera, etc cetera. they none of them even like even had the thought that it could be you know like monetize essentially turning the house into just you know this you know i don't even yeah Exactly, a factory, a slave factory, factory farm, sort of of, of data and um, it, you know using data to sell us stuff. So 
there are some interesting pieces in there. And I also think her, her take on, she, she's pretty lucid around just describing exactly how insidious the business model is. And she spends a lot of time on Google and um, Microsoft and others in addition to Facebook, which I think is also important. It's good, it's good to hate everyone, you know? <laughs> you know, concentrate your hate too much on one entity. And the other thing that she talks about, which I found fascinating was, in, especially in the case of Google, was how their perception of the imperative of having to monetize drove them to flip from like, this is all gonna be open source and data privacy and all these other things that, you know, Bryn and Paige were like ardent about in the early days to like monetizing everything. And so there's this moment, right? She pinpoints this moment and it's really interesting. I think for all of us who are entrepreneurs dealing like um, in tech broadly, but also just like data and, um, you know, we have ideals and we're trying to build a better world. That was a super cautionary tale of like, you know, about shareholder capitalism, about, about like how that can precipitate you know, you know, maybe in that moment, it seemed like the right decision because you wanted to keep your project going. But what are the consequences of that? So, yeah, important. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the shareholder, I mean, I've been thinking about what I was saying about shareholder capitalism and trying to trying to see if I still agree with what I said like an hour ago. And um, <laughs> I, guess, I guess I kind of do. But the, another model I've been kind of thinking about I mean the, the the challenge you know so it's like okay there's nothing inherently wrong with a with a shareholder based corporation challenges more about the issues are more about you know what happens when you have many of them and when your whole society comes to depend on them and, and questions about how are they regulated you know and where is the common kind of uh, stake in all of them right and so maybe it's like well maybe if if there was like a, a community you know, like a co-op in the community and in order for a corporation to like be active in that community, you know, the co-op had to receive a stake in it or something like that. Right. So that yeah. somehow the corporations become increasingly like subsidiaries of, or, you know, uh, included in the shareholders are these kind of co-ops and larger representation of people. But, you know, or like the labor union actually has a stake instead of just being like an external or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. 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 You know, Bernie, Bernie Sanders is saying that, that he's going to like sign an executive order that makes it an imperative in the United States that all corporations include employee ownership. Wow. So that's so the challenge with that is it, the effect of that could be that he bankrupts a huge number of those employees because of the tax consequences of receiving shares. <laughs> I know, I know. The, so we might need that, a second order to follow up on that. That is such a mind fuck. We've, I've been dealing with that in, in one of my businesses wanting to get, you know, the like people who are working their ass off and are amazing and are basically running the business now, like yeah. in as shareholders, but it has a valuation. So yeah. there's tax consequences. It's like, it's totally, uh, I, I'm still trying to figure that out. It's a, it's mind bending. It's pretty bad. Yeah, it's annoying. Yeah. So, anyway, well, you know, uh, if you have any hacks, if you come up with any hacks, let me know. <laughs> There's all kinds of interesting things you can do with co-ops around tax law. It turns out, at least in Ontario. 
we're kind of exploring that. So you can um, just change to be a co-op. Maybe. Um, that's my challenge is like the conversion of, uh, in this case, it's Terragenesis International, which is our permaculture um, consulting business that incubated Regen Network for a long time. And, and actually it was due to that incubation and you know that relationship that the valuation of TGI got like it wow. got valued yeah. <laughs> and instead of just being like yeah whatever it's just an LLC and whatever we you know um yeah and so through that process you know we got to just figure out how to yeah how it, it's always been run essentially as a partnership co-op but the legal structure is clumsy in that it's hard for people who come later to to be vested without tax consequences right exactly yeah so, so yeah i mean membership uh th i guess that's that's one of the nice things about co-ops is that you know you 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 just buy your membership and it's usually like a dollar or five dollars or ten dollars it's not really a problem and then at least at least in ontario there especially if it's a worker co-op you know i'm not a tax lawyer etc get your own um i have too many but uh, <laughs> it uh, at least in Ontario for a worker co-op, you can distribute profits uh, to the workers uh, pre-tax. So before you pay corporate tax, you distribute the profits, which is kind of effectively like it were a flow-through like LLC style, oh, yeah. but it's you know cooperatively owned and managed, and you can bring in a new person with equal weight without having to you know really restructure anything it's just a new member right so. yeah no that's cool yeah another interesting thing that um another interesting thing is this um structure called purpose per the purpose trust and purpose corporations if you've come across them it's totally worth checking out they're basically doing a hack into existing shareholder um companies and making it so that um the founding members um making it so that workers and potentially founders depending on how you language it um have decision have all of the decision making shares and the shareholders who are in it for dividends um have no decision making shares and there's like this legal they have this legal trick where they give one they give one decision-making share to a trust in Switzerland whose sole purpose is to make sure that the shareholders can never do a takeover of the decision. <laughs> That's um, amazing. And there's a couple big, like Bosch, the power tool company, their purpose company, and there's some other ones. They're also like worker. They're also a big worker. Uh, they're owned by a nonprofit though. I yeah. Uh, yeah, but they have, but they they're, I think part of their ownership structure is a nonprofit, but they also have like worker ownership. And, and more importantly, it's less about the ownership. It's about the decision making. Right. So it's like that, that you can be a decision maker and steer the course if you're a worker. Um, and so there's just something about that, which is kind of cool. It doesn't really consider all the tax implications. It's more just like governance, like just ensuring that decision making is in the hands of the people who are actively like working on stuff yeah. instead of some other yeah yeah so i've become a huge corporate structure nerd in a way that i never imagined i would but uh it's it's fascinating um, yeah it's the super. problem is that the tax consequences are always in the way of you know doing things right but um 
yeah, it's cool that there's these people are experimenting. And I'm, I'm really, I really like the idea of having kind of uh, parents, you know, for-profit shareholder-based corporations where the parents who have a non-negligible, you know, amount of shares are a co-op or a non-profit or, you know, somehow, you know, some, some kind of more socialized democratic entity so that the kind of shareholder, you know, run wild, innovative capitalist thing is a little bit more contained by that kind of shared parent interest and seeing examples where this has worked. Like, you know, the Mozilla corporation is wholly owned by a foundation. Bosch is like 90% owned by a foundation. Ikea is, is ultimately fully owned by two foundations. It's kind of a mess, but, um, you know, so there's a few examples of quite successful entities that have this kind of structure. And, you know, I would love to, you know, nurture more of that and support more of that. And totally, uh, you know, so TerraGenesis is a part of uh, a venture co-op called Cycle Effect that um, does, it, it's basically, it's, yeah, it's, it's like a cooperatively owned holding company that, cool. um, that is a co-op. Right, it is a co-op, um, co a Colorado State co-op that's a holding company that makes it, that that then owns a, an LLC that yep. makes investments in this portfolio of different companies. Yep. Um, you know, super cool, all super cool companies. And when it makes an investment, a part of that, yeah. So you actually end up being an owner of all of the portfolio companies. So that was this was like the plan really or what we've been talking about quite a bit about um cephalopod the you know our validator co-op mm -hmm. the idea was like you know let's use let's see if you know maybe validating will be profitable enough that we can use the proceeds from that to kind of seed a fund underneath the co-op use the co-op as a holding company to actually start funding you know different companies that will then have a share or a membership in the co-op so it kind of acts as like insurance across them and aligns the incentives and and so on so that kind of model i think is very promising and i'd love to see that exist in many places and be replicated in many places but you know awesome. it's very different from the kind of winner take all venture capitalist based based approach or you know vulture capitalism and um i think you know that's a yeah we're up against something quite substantial there yeah it's a totally different model i mean it's sort of building it's it's a it's it's going to be a little slower you know it's going to be, there'll be different businesses, right? They'll, the, the interest to the portfolio or the cooperative may sort of be multi-capital. It's not necessarily like what the liquidation value is of that business. It may be more like what's the benefit to the community? Is, is the business bringing something that is missing that is going to strengthen the other businesses? Yeah, it's a very different approach to business. But I think it's, you know, it's that sort of like nurture approach to to you know capital flows i think is yeah it's just what has to happen right if we can't figure that out it's it's not looking so great really it's a lot more fun too frankly i mean it's just it's just more fun to be an entrepreneur in that world i think it's sort of like the difference between like like the the world of like being a bitcoin miner versus being a proof of stake validator yeah. I think is a similar like being a just like a standard VC and being this sort of like venture cooperatist cooperativist um, I think it's a similar like phase shift of like it's a different business model it's a different approach 
you know, you're way more likely to cooperate with someone who in the old world might be considered a competitor, you know, um, share some ideas. Like what's, there's not much, the risks are just different. The risk, risks well, are much also, different. The, the thing I also really like is it, uh, it breeds a, a more of a mentality of sustainability in the corporations themselves, right? So like the venture capital model is that from the get-go, they expect 90% of the entities to fail yeah. and the rest to be huge payouts, billion dollar companies, thousands of employees, whatever. And it's like, you know, you know, that's not how you build a sustainable society, right? Like instead you should make investments and, you know, maybe you can get a much smaller number to fail and the rest are actually succeeding sustainably as, you know, quote unquote lifestyle businesses that only make a few million dollars in profit a year. Like God forbid, uh, you know, you should have a reasonably profitable company. But Totally. Have you ever crunched the numbers on that? Like, you know, what does it look like to have, you know, is it 60% or 70% success rate, but they're very, they're modest lifestyle businesses with, you know, sort of like limited dividends. Like, I just wonder what the, you know, what it actually looks like when you project those two strategies out. Yeah. Um, that'd be interesting. Very interesting. Uh, yeah, we're would love to explore that more. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, we we got back into it. That was that was fun. Dangerous, <laughs> huh? <laughs> totally, totally. But I should let you go, and I got a couple things I got to take care of too. Um, yeah. Thanks again, Ethan, and looking forward to connecting. Um, yeah. If you ever have anything on your mind, just give me a ping, and uh, let's do this again in a couple months. I would love to. Thanks awesome. so much. Thanks for having me. Great yeah. talking to you. Ciao. Cheers.